Welcome to the College Park Church of Christ Sermon Series Podcast. This sermon was recorded at the College Park Church of Christ in the Conroe Porter area. Join us for worship on Sundays at 10.30 a.m. and Wednesday at 7 p.m. Thanks for studying the Word of God with us. So this morning, I want to start with something foundational to set a tone for the rest of the week. And uh, I've entitled our lesson, When the Word Won't Work. And that may make some of you have the hair stand up on the back of your neck. And I think you'll understand what I mean by that in just a moment. So stick with me. Uh, don't check out because you don't like the title. First Thessalonians chapter 2 and there verse 13 here, Paul writing says, For this reason, we also thank God without ceasing. And I want to stop there and think about those words. Whatever is Paul's about to talk about, he says, there's something about you, you Christians in Thessalonica, that are causing us to thank God consistently and perpetually without ceasing. And that ought to grab our attention, because whatever he's thanking God for is very important. And here's what he was thanking God for. He says, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which also effectively works in you who believe. So what was it that Paul and the others that traveled with him were so thankful about? Well, it was about the way that they heard and received God's word. He said, you welcomed it. But it wasn't just that they welcomed it. It was how they welcomed it that caused him to thank God without ceasing. He says, you welcomed it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. You know, you probably won't have to talk to too many people today before you find somebody that says, the Bible? Really? You believe the Bible? I mean, don't you know that that's just some book written by men? Don't you know it's outdated? Don't you know it's just archaic and it's irrelevant for us today? You run into people like that, but you know what's really sad is when you run into God's people and they have that same attitude. And they look at the Bible as just something, yeah, I know I need to read it, but, and, and I know it's the wisdom of God, but, you know, really? But here's the problem. If you read God's Word, and you can read it all day, every day, and you don't have the right heart, if you don't have the right attitude, it will do nothing in you. And notice what he says, because of the way you welcomed God's word and you received it, it effectively works in you who believe. And that's God's design. God did not design his word just to be something that we read and understand and memorize and know. God designed his word to effectively work within us, to change our heart, to change our mind, to shape how we view the world, to shape how we view him, to shape how we view ourselves. And you know what? There's certain times when the Word of God just doesn't work in the hearts of people. It doesn't work. And you say, what do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that sometimes people read God's Word, but it doesn't have God's desired effect. And that's what I want to talk about this morning. Why is it that sometimes the Word of God doesn't affect our hearts? And I want to be very clear very clear as we start, that when that happens, it has nothing to do with the power and effectiveness of God's Word. Nothing to do with God's Word. In fact, the Bible says this, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And that phrase, inspiration of God, means God breathed. It is the Word of God. It is God speaking to us. And he said it is profitable. That is, it's good to the advancing of a thing. It's profitable. It's helpful. It's productive. For what? For doctrine that is teaching or understanding what's true. It's It's profitable for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. So I don't want you to 
misunderstand what I'm saying when I say when the word won't work, that that has something to do with the ineffectiveness or power of God's word because God's word is very powerful. And I think that would really not even do it justice to just say it's very powerful. But you know, the scriptures tell us this in Hebrews chapter four, where it says the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. I'm talking really fast. I'm going to slow down for a minute. I want to think about this. God's word is like a two-edged sword. What's a two-edged sword for? Why would you put an edge on one side and an edge on the other? You know, I guess I, when I was young, I just thought, well, you do that so you can cut this way and cut this way. But, you know, you look through history and you look through the history of weapons. That's really not why they put two edges on a sword. Two edges was designed for piercing. And look at what he says. It's sharper than any two-edged sword piercing. Not slicing, not cutting, but piercing. And what does God's word pierce? The deepest parts of a man. The soul, the spirit, the joints, the marrow, the thoughts and intents. That was mentioned this morning about our intentions in the prayer. Our motives. You know how psychologically complex our motives are? They're like this big ball of wound up and tangled up yarn. And we try to figure out, well, why did I do that? Did I do that out of pure intentions? Did I do that for pride? We can't even figure that out, but God's word can. God's word is living and it is powerful. It is powerful. I've seen the toughest, strongest, bravest men cry tears of sorrow and guilt and shame because the word of God pierced them deeply. It's like nothing else in this world. No book that you'll ever read. Because this word is living. It's not archaic. It's not ancient. It's not irrelevant. This is the holy wisdom of God. But you know what he said earlier in the chapter? He said this. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them. Wait a minute. I thought God's word was profitable. It is. But it didn't profit some. Not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. See, God's word is only profitable to those that receive it, those who believe it. And so sometimes it doesn't penetrate the heart. Now listen, God's word always is, does what it's designed to do in the fact that it will not return to God void. But as far as an individual is concerned, if you don't receive it and you don't believe it, it will not work in you. You know, this is exactly what Jesus talked about in the parable of the sower. And I want to ask you three separate times this morning. I'll have most of the scriptures up on the screen, but there's a couple longer readings. I'm going to ask you to get your Bible or, or your electronic device and, and read along with me. Matthew chapter 13. We're not going to read the actual parable. We're going to kind of get in the middle of the parable and then the explanation of the parable because there's some really important words of Jesus here that as he was asked the question of his disciples that I want to consider. And we're going to actually end with the last phrase of Jesus giving the parable because that's going to be helpful to our understanding of the rest of this. So we're going to start in verse 9. And Jesus says this, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now we're going to stop. Do you suppose there were people in the crowd that day that didn't have ears? Obviously, this is not literal, right? He's not saying if you've got physical ears. So what does he mean if you have ears to hear? 
He's saying if you have a desire for the kingdom of God, a desire for truth, then listen. Okay, hold on to that thought. We're going to come back to that in just a moment. Let's continue. Verse 10. And the disciples came, unto, came to him and said to him, Why do you speak to them in parables? You know, that's a fair question. If, if I was to walk around for the rest of the week, some of you don't know me, and you may think I'm weird anyway, but, but if I walked around all this week and every time that I interacted with you, I gave you some analogy or some riddle, you think, that guy's so strange. I mean, why does he talk that way? And, and they're just asking a very innocent, simple question. Why, why do you speak in parables? Because that was odd. And so Jesus answers with this, verse 11. He said to them, because it is given to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to them it is not given. For whosoever has, to him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whosoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Therefore I speak to them in parables, because seeing they do not see, and hearing they do not hear, nor do they understand. Now there's multiple reasons why Jesus gave parables, which we don't have time to go into. But here's Jesus' explanation to them. They said, why do you speak in parables? And he said, because unto you it's given to know the mysteries. That is, it's given to understand, to perceive, to comprehend the mysteries of the kingdom. But to them it's not given. And somebody might read that and think, oh, okay, that's because God didn't want them to understand. And so he's speaking in this obscure way so that those who really, you know, he doesn't want them to understand, they won't. That's actually not what he's saying. Notice the next verse, and this will help us understand. He says in verse 12, for whosoever has... To him more will be given, and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have, even what he has will be taken away from him. Doesn't that clear everything up? What's he mean? Well, let's look at some words here. Whoever has. Has what? What did Jesus say? Whoever has ears to hear, let him hear. Whoever has, to him more will be given. What was given? He said, unto you it's given. What was given? To know, to perceive, to understand the kingdom. So I believe what he's saying is this. When people have a desire for truth, they will be given understanding. But when people don't have a desire, even the understanding that they think that they have will be stripped away from them. And so they listen to the parables. You know what they hear? They hear about a a man that's a farmer who's throwing seed out on the ground. They don't get it. It's the natural man. He can't perceive the spiritual things. He can't understand those things. You know why? Because it all starts with desire. You've got to have ears to hear. Now listen to the, to the rest of what Jesus' explanation is here. Verse 14. And in them, that's those that don't have the desire and don't understand, in them the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and shall not understand, and seeing you will see and not perceive, for the hearts of this people have grown dull, their ears are hard of hearing. Now listen, and their eyes they have closed. They close their eyes. God didn't close their eyes, they close their eyes. Why? Because their heart wasn't right. Their heart wasn't right. You know, there's three things he talks about here, and this is going to be a big focus of our lesson this morning. The heart, the eyes, and the ears. Now, how does something get in the heart? And I don't mean physically. I don't mean operationally speaking. But how does something get in our heart? The eyes and the ears. And whatever goes in the eyes and the ears shapes and formulates and, 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 and it gets into our heart. And really by heart, we don't mean this that beats blood in our chest, but really we're talking about the intellect or the mind or the spirit of a man, the inner man. How does a heart get hard? 
through years of rejecting, years of rebelling, years of desiring the wrong things, that heart gets calloused. That desire is no longer there. And you know, when we read this, we're thinking, well, yeah, we're talking about these hard-hearted people, these people that wouldn't listen, but what about us? Do you think this ever happens to God's people? That our heart gets hard? That maybe there's reason why our ears and our eyes are not working properly in order to receive what God wants us to receive? I really believe that. And I'll tell you why I believe that, because that's happened in my life. It's happened in my life. And you know, one of the things that we must understand is that when we don't understand the word, the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in our heart. And listen, this is he who receives seed by the wayside. As Jesus gave the parable, he said, you know, there's some people that they hear the word, but they don't understand it. So this tells us how important it is not to just read God's word and memorize God's word, but understand God's word. Because when we don't understand it, you know what Satan does with it? Doesn't matter how much you memorize it, it'll never be applicable. It'll never bear fruit in your life. It won't work. So what happens? It's useless. And Satan comes and he just takes it right out of the heart that it was sown in. One of the biggest reasons is is because sometimes we're not teachable. But you know, another reason why we may not understand is because somebody may be confusing. And I'm going to butcher every one of these names. So please don't, you know, judge me too harshly for that. I'm from West Texas and we're uneducated. So give give me a little slack. All right, also, Jeshua, Bani, Sherebiah, Jamin, Achab, Shebathah, Hodijah, Maesia, Kalida, Azariah, Jose, Josebad, Hanan, Peleiah, and the Levites. Probably got close on that one. Um, they helped the people to understand the law, and the people stood in their place. So they read distinctly from the book and the law of God, and they gave the sense and helped them to understand the reading. Do you ever just get ideas in your mind about how situations were and you just can't unsee it? Well, my idea of of these guys that would read the law was they'd come and stand up behind a pulpit of wood, which we see the example of that in the Old Testament, and they would just read very monotone and very, you know, I guess lifeless. And they'd just go sit down, but that's not really the picture we get here, that they just read. What does it say? They read distinctly. They're picky about what they read. And then what they do, they gave the sense. They explained the meaning of the passages. And and I want to encourage our teachers for a moment, because I'm sure you all got several teachers here today. As a teacher, your job is not to be a slot filler. That's not your job, to be a slot filler. What I mean by that is for you to give a lesson and to get up on Saturday night if you're preaching on Sunday, or Saturday morning rather than probably not Saturday night, but Saturday morning and put together a lesson because you're a slot filler but to actually spend time in God's Word so that you understand what you're reading so when you teach others, they'll understand what you're saying. Because your job is to be an edifier, not a slot filler. Teach. Explain. The Bible's simple, and it's meant to be explained in a simple way. You know, the the proverb says that the law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul, making wise the simple. And when people say, well, I just don't have enough intellect to understand God's Word, maybe it's not being explained in a simple way. It needs to be simple. And that's what these men did. They gave the sense. They didn't just anticipate or expect that everybody out in the crowd understood what they understood. They explained what the Scriptures meant. And we have to be careful about that as teachers. We also have to be careful as a listener. You know, when I think about this man, this Ethiopian eunuch, this is a man of high authority. 
And, and people of high authority in those days, they were the educated people of the time. And you think about those two things being mixed together, high education and high authority, and what do you usually get? A lot of ego. But what I see in this man is a lot of humility. And so as Philip comes up to him, he says to him, do you understand what you're reading? And you know what we do? We take offense to that question. What are you saying? What do you think, I'm dumb? What did he say? No, I don't. How can I except some man guides me? You know, sometimes that's our worst enemy. You know what I do if I don't understand a passage? I pick up the phone. I call somebody. Somebody that I know is a serious student of Scripture, and I say, hey, not getting it here. What's your thoughts? And they give me their thoughts. I say, I don't agree. Call somebody else. <laughs> do we ever actually ask for help? Or do we just go, well, you know, it's just too hard. I just can't get it. I don't understand it. There's nothing wrong with asking for help. And there are people who have devoted their life to studying God's Word that would be glad to help you. They'd be excited at the chance to help you. But don't let pride get in your way. You know, another man that I think could have dra really drastically let pride get in his way is a man we read about in Acts chapter 18. His name is Apollos. And we're not going to spend a lot of time talking about Apollos, but there's some details that, that Luke gives here that I think are very interesting because we don't have these details about every character in Scripture. You know, I don't know where Peter was from. I don't know what his educational background is. There's very little that we know about the Apostle Peter, even though he's a very important character that we read about, and his life is outlined in other ways, but we get all this background information about Apollos, and that there's a reason for that. And so he introduces us to this man, Apollos, and he says he was born at Alexandria. He was an eloquent man and mighty in the Scriptures, and it says he came to Ephesus. Verse 25 says, This man had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things of the Lord, though he knew only the baptism of John. You know, when you look at this guy and you just read these details, they may just pass right by us, but Alexandria doesn't really mean a lot to us today, but if I was to say words like Harvard or Yale or Stanford, which, which is changing, by the way, but we hear those words and what do we think? Ivy League education, the highest level of education. And so in those days, that's what Alexandria is associated with. It had the largest library in the entire world, and it was the center of learning. What's he, why is he telling us where he's from? He's educated. And he's not only educated, he knows the Bible. Not only is he mighty in the scriptures, he's an eloquent speaker. And I bet words just came off his tongue like rivers of silk. He's just, he's smooth with his words. He's eloquent in his speech. You know what he also was trained? It says he was instructed in the way of the Lord. Who's the Lord? You ever thought about that? You know, we use that word Lord very loosely. But you know what the Bible says? There's one Lord. That's Ephesians 4. There's one Lord. Who's the Lord? It's Jesus. Who's he teaching? Jesus. Now, he got the baptism part wrong, right? And we recognize that. But he's teaching Jesus, and somebody took some time to explain to him Jesus. He's instructed, right? Now we run into a couple more characters. So he began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Aquila and Priscilla heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Now, who is Priscilla and Aquila? Tent makers. So I want you to get the picture here. Here's this doctor, this Dr. Apollos, Ph.D., and he's an expert in his field. And he knows the Bible a lot better than a tent maker for certain, and probably did. He was mighty in the scriptures. And here these lowly tent makers come to him and they said, we'd like to talk to you about your sermon. And what usually happens in that? Okay, what do you want to know? 
right? Because the Bible tells us that knowledge puffs up, but love edifies. This guy could have went, really? Do you know who I am? Do you want to have a, a scripture battle? You want to see who's more trained? Did you go to seminary? Did you go to university? Are you, are people gathering around to listen to you preach? That's how a lot of people take that. Apollos repented at the correction of tent makers. You know what this tells us? Anybody can learn from anybody, but we have to have the humility and the desire for truth not to be right. And I hope you understand what I mean by that. Sometimes we are so passionate about defending what we believe that we close our ears. We shut our eyes and God's word doesn't take effect because we already know the truth, right? We already know. And I'll tell you, you will close every door of opportunity that you have to grow in God's word if you really have that attitude and that perception. This man could have had that, but he didn't. And you know what happened? He was corrected by simple tent makers and he became a pillar in God's kingdom. Because he had the humility to repent when he was corrected. This is a big one. It's a big one. You know, we use this word all the time, tradition. What does tradition mean? It, it literally means the transference or the transmission of beliefs and practices from one generation to another. In other words, it's what's passed down to us that we believe and we practice. And you know, there's, I put this up here because this was a tradition for us. I'm a fourth generation carpenter and I don't do a lot of carpentry work. I don't have time to do it, but, but, but that was, has always been our family tradition. And, and there were always two ways to do things. There was my dad's way and the wrong way. That's it, right? And guess what? My dad experienced growing up, same thing. And as I got out, ventured on my own, started doing my own work, I started realizing, you know, there's a lot simpler ways to do this. And, but you know what I teach my son? No, you need to do it this way. And that's the thing about traditions. You know, traditions can be a good thing, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But, but here's the other thing about traditions. Something very dangerous about traditions is when we're really young, in the earliest, most impressionable years of our life, when we're absorbing everything like a sponge, we absorb a whole bunch of traditions that we don't have the mental cognizance to understand. And so we practice the tradition before we understand the tradition. And if we start doing that and nobody ever explains to us, here's why we have the tradition, we'll just mindlessly continue to do the same thing over and over and over and over because that's the way we've always done it, not ever understanding it and never questioning whether or not it's a good or a bad tradition. You know what? We see a lot of teaching in the New Testament by Jesus himself addressing these type of traditions. In Colossians chapter 2 and verse 8, here's what Paul said. Beware lest any man cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not after Christ. I actually really like the ESV version of this where it says, See to it that no one takes you captive. No one takes you captive. And that's what the idea here, that word cheat literally means to lead away as booty, like, like you think about a pirate and stealing something away and taking it. And that's what he's saying. You could be taken away. You could be taken captive by what? By philosophy and empty deceit. What's philosophy? It's secular or human knowledge. Well, we would never do that, right? We would never do that. We'd never be roped in by something like that. I'll tell you, be careful what you watch on YouTube. It's full of this stuff. 
It's full of human philosophy. It's full of men who will explain the Bible according to human philosophy and tell you all the reasons why God's Word doesn't actually mean what God's Word says. You know what it does? It takes people captive. Pulls them away from Christ, puts them right back in the world. Be very careful who you listen to and what you practice. But we're safe, right? Because the people that have taught us our traditions, they love us. They have our best interest at heart, right? And I, I hope that's true. But we also have to be careful about that. And Jesus had some things to say about that. Luke chapter 6 and verse 39. He spoke a parable to them. Can the blind lead the blind? Will they not both fall into the ditch? That's the entire parable. Short parable. Very impactful when you think about it. What direction will a blind person lead a blind person? We don't know. And neither do they. Because they can't see where they're going. They don't know where their destination is. They don't know what road they're on. They cannot see to know where they're going. Then he says this, A disciple's not above his teacher, but everyone who is perfectly trained will be like his teacher. You know, the first time I, well, first several times I read this, I thought he was making some connection between him as the teacher and his disciples, but he's really not. He's making a, gen, a general truth about mentorship and discipleship. And here's, here's the point. When somebody is thoroughly trained by their mentor, who will they be like? Their mentor. Even if their mentor is blind. And he's pointing at them. And then he says these words, very familiar words. Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not perceive the beam in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, brother, let me remove the speck that is in your eye when you yourself do not see the beam that is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the beam from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck that is in your brother's eye. We read this and we go, oh yeah, this is about judgment. Well, it is about judgment, but you know what else it's about? That something that we might overlook. It's about the eyes. This is all flowing together. Can the blind lead the blind? He's talking about blindness. He's talking about not being able to see. He's talking about traditions. And here's what he says to them. Can you imagine that you walk up to somebody and let's say you've got a chunk of wood about this long sticking out of your eye and you see a little piece of sawdust in somebody's eye. You say, hey, hold still real quick. Be careful. Glad we got that. And there we go. Um, what are you, blind? Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right? Because here you got this giant hunk of wood sticking out of your eye, and you're, you want to remove the piece of sawdust? You know what? You know why people would do that? Listen to what Jesus says. Then you will see clearly. What's this about? It's about perception. And he said, there's certain things in your way so that you don't see clearly. That's why you can't make the right judgments. You've got something blocking, clouding your vision, causing you to see things distorted and fuzzy. And what was it? Their mentors had handed down things to them that they were blind to because they were completely and thoroughly trained and loyal to those mentors. Very dangerous thing if we're not careful. Not saying it's a bad thing, but it's something to be mindful of and be careful about. Because as much as someone may have our best interests, as much as they may love us, as much as they may be a godly person, it doesn't mean all their ways and understandings are right. God's Word is right. Turn with me to Mark chapter 7. Mark chapter 7. <clears throat> Mark chapter 7. 
And verses 1 through 4 are Mark's narrative. He's going to give us some background information so we can understand what this conversation is about that we're, that we're going to read. Mark chapter 7, verses 1 through 4. Mark 7 and 1 says, Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, having come from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. For the, for the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way, holding the tradition of the elders. When they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other things which they've received and hold, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper, vessels, and couches. Then the Pharisees and scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat bread with unwashed hands? Now, I'm thankful to Mark because he gives us all this background information to help us understand, but, but, but let's really try to put ourselves in the place of the Pharisees for a moment. Now, I'm going to reveal something about myself, and you can make fun of me or whatever, but I'm a little bit of a germaphobe. Not, not on the extreme side where I carry around wipes like Adrian Monk or anything, but, but I'm a little bit of a germaphobe, and so... I've got kids at home, and I've got kids all the time in and out of my house, especially teenage boys. You know, what, you know what kids' hands are? They're disgusting. They just are. They're nasty. They will touch anything. They're not very selective about what they touch and when they wash. And so a lot of times they'll come in to eat. They'll say, hey, it's time to eat. And they come in. I go, whoa, 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 whoa. Go wash your hands, right? Is that practical to make people wash their hands before they eat? I think that's very practical. But I'm biased, okay? You know what happens? Sometimes they'll come in and, and they'll get past me and they'll not wash their hands and they'll stick their hands. I'll say, did you really just touch my bread with your nasty hands? You know, just playing with them. That's their bread now. And they're going to go wash their hands. But let's imagine a completely different scenario. Let's take Ian to a different extreme for a moment. Let's say they come in and touch the bread with their hands and they take a bite and I say, did you really just eat with unwashed hands? And they say, yes, sir. And I say, you go to your room and you pray to God for forgiveness. You say, Hold on now. That's where these men are at. It's not, hey, y'all ought to wash your hands before you eat. It's when they saw the disciples of Jesus eat with defiled, that is, unwashing hands, they found fault. They took something good and practical, wash your hands before you eat. They made it a law of God. They made it a moral issue. You have sinned by not washing your hands. Are they right? No, they're not right. And Jesus is going to explain to them that they're not right. Verse 6, here's his answer. Well, did I, Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. Now these are very important verses, so pay very close attention. Verse 8, for laying aside the commandments of God, you hold the tradition of men, the washing of pitchers and cups and many other such things you do. He said to them, all too well, you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and mother, and he who curses father and mother, let him be put to death. But you say, if a man says to his father and mother, whatever profit you might have received from me is Corban, that is a gift to God, then you no longer let him, uh, let him do anything for his father or his mother, making the word of God of no effect through your tradition, which you've handed down in many such Things you do. You know what Jesus is doing? He's exposing that while they believe that their traditions are, thus says the Lord, he says, your traditions are actually very, very problematic. Very problematic. And there's three things that he mentions here that I really want to, to, to take a hold of this morning and think about as we think about our own traditions, our own practices. And here's the three things that Jesus mentioned. 
He said, first of all, you will lay aside the commandments of God that you may hold your tradition. Now, uh, when I do carpenter work, usually now it's building furniture, and I've learned something about furniture building. Number one, you can never have enough clamps. I don't care if you got 10,000, you need 10,001, and then you need 10,002, and you get the point. And the problem is you don't have enough hands. Because a lot of times you got to hold this and hold this and clamp this and glue this. And, and there's a lot of things you're going, hey, I need help. I need more hands, right? Well, sometimes I'm out there by myself and I just got to prioritize. And so if my hands are full, I got to go, okay, you got to prioritize. Figure out what you want to lay down, what you need to hold. You get the picture? So faced with that decision, when they got the word of God here and they got the traditions here and they're forced to go, I got to lay something down. What would they lay down? The word of God. Because they couldn't hold both. You know why? Because they contradicted each other. That's a problem, right? In fact, he says, full well, you reject the commandments of God that you may keep your tradition. Not only were they laying aside the commandments of God, they would skirt around the word of God and reject the word of God so they could continue to do what they believed was right in their own eyes. And then the last thing he says, which probably should grab our attention more than anything, is he said, and through your tradition, you have made the word of God of none of he said God's word was designed to have an effect. And he said, in this regard, he's talking about father and mother. God's word was designed so that you would take care of your mother and your father. But you know what you did? You found a legal loophole to say, well, you know, I designated that as a gift. So, sorry, y'all can't have that. I gave that to the Lord. Now, I believe these are three lenses that we must view tradition through. We must ask ourselves, are my traditions causing me to skirt around God's word, causing me to put down God's word and hold it? Are my traditions causing the word of God to be made of none effect? And if they are, you know what we need to do? Reject the tradition. Now, don't get the idea that well, Ian hates tradition. He thinks tradition's bad. That's not true at all. Traditions are good. In fact, we see in 2 Thessalonians 2.15, Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you've been taught, whether by word or our epistle. What I'm saying is every tradition needs to be viewed not through our familial loyalty, not through our mentorship, not through something that we just really enjoy or, or we like doing, but it needs to be viewed with God's word. Is it in line with God's word? And then we hold them. There's a reason we have traditions. They've been passed down and handed to us by the apostles through, through the, uh, because of the Holy Spirit's direction so that we would follow those traditions. So, but let's be careful that our eyes aren't affected and that we hold the wrong things. James chapter 1 and verse 18 through 25. And we're not going to read all the way to verse 25. I, I will encourage you to read that uh, later in your own time. But we're going to talk about this just a little bit for a moment. James chapter 1. Verse 18, James' writing says, Of his own will he brought us forth, or if you're reading the King James, it says he begat us with the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So then, or wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath, for the wrath of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Now, typically... Uh, when I have read this passage in verse 19, I read this and I go, okay, so when I'm talking to someone, I need to be very careful to listen. I need to be slow to speak and not get angry, right? That, that's how I typically think about it. This is about conversation between two people. Well, there's Proverbs that teach us that, lots of Proverbs that teach us those same principles, but that's not what this is teaching. This is not about me talking to you or you talking to me. Notice again, what does he start out with? 
that he brought us forth with the word or by the word of truth. Wherefore, we might be the first fruits, right? So then, based on what I just said, because we've been brought forth with the word of truth, let every man be slow to speak. Is that about me talking to you? No. It's about be listening to God's word. You say, I don't know about that. I'm not sure about that. Well, let's continue reading. Notice there's a contrast painted in the next verse. Verse 21, therefore, there's that word again that's continuing the thoughts, lay aside all filthiness and overflow wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your soul. He's contrasting people that receive the word with meekness versus people who receive the word with anger and resistance. You say, well, people don't do that. People do that all the time. They hear God's word and you know what they'll, yeah, but, yeah, but. And then if you press them a little harder, then they get mad. And you know what? Getting angry when you hear something that challenges you will do. I'll tell you what it won't do. It will not produce the righteousness of God. Never. It never does that. In fact, we often talk about that. We say, well, there's righteous anger and all this, and I'm not going to get into that in great detail. But did you know every time in the wisdom letters in Proverbs and Ecclesiastes, when anger or wrath is mentioned, it's always associated with foolishness and never with wisdom? Not one time. Go look it up. Not one time. You know why? Because the wrath of man never produces the righteousness of God. But you know what does? Meekness. Humility. Listening with humility and submissiveness. And what does that do? That saves your soul. That saves your soul. Sometimes our ears are closed because, again, we've already decided what is right. And the Bible says the way of a fool is right in his own eyes. But he who heeds counsel is wise. And you know what's ironic? We often think that learning is associated with intellect, right? But you know who the hardest person to teach in every room is? The smartest guy there. Isn't that ironic? The one that we would say is the most capable of learning is the hardest person to teach. You know why? Because he's the smartest guy there. You're not going to teach him anything. You're dumber than him. I'm not going to learn anything from you. I just want you to be quiet so I can start talking and tell you what I know. Is that us? Do we feel that way about ourselves? What we learn from Apollos? Anybody can learn from anybody, but you know what we have to do? Listen. And not just listen. You know, I'm, you know, I'm not venting here, but well, I'll tell you one of the most frustrating things to me is when somebody calls me and says, man, I really need advice about this. And, and we go through the scriptures and we talk about it. They go, oh, okay, that's great, that's great. And next week they, they call me back and they, they say, well, you know, I, I went and I had that meeting and I did this. And, and I say, well, well, what happened? They said, well... I didn't do what we talked about. And I said, well, what happened? They said, it blew up. Are we that way? I'm that way sometimes, right? We can get that way. Thousands of people followed Jesus. Thousands followed Jesus. You know what's interesting is they fought him for a reason. He was their provider. And so they're going out and he's teaching them and all of a sudden he feeds miraculously thousands of people with just a lad's lunch. Wouldn't you like to have been there? Wouldn't you like to have eaten that? Eaten that food? I mean, you'd never leave the Lord after that, right? You'd be really excited. And you'd be like, this, this is definitely the guy we want to be around. Well, they felt that way. And so Jesus tells his disciples, hey, we, let's, let's draw away from the multitude and let's go over here. And they go to this place and they get over to this place. 
And all of a sudden, here's the multitude. And so Jesus begins to tell them some things, some very hard things. And he said, the reason that you're here is because you ate the food. That's why you're here. See, no, your fathers, they ate man in the wilderness and they're dead. But I have bread that if I give it to you and you eat it, you'll never die. And you know what they said? Okay, that's the bread we want from now on. You give us that bread. And Jesus says, I am the bread. And they go, obviously I'm paraphrasing. <laughs> Do what? You're the bread? How's this man going to give us his flesh to eat? He said, not only is my flesh meat, but my blood is drink. And now it's really causing those hamster cages to fire in rapid speed. Because that's against the law of Moses. We can't drink blood. You know what they said? That's a hard saying. This is a hard saying. Who can listen to that? Who said that? When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Jesus said, do you take offense at this? You know what the truth is? Sometimes Jesus says things that are hard. Sometimes the apostles say things that are hard to hear. You know what's not going to do us any good? is to do like what these people did. Because what the Bible continues to say is from that day, many of his disciples walked with him no more. That one conversation where Jesus exposed their desire, they walked away. Is that who we are? Acts 2.37 says when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. God's word, like that two-edged sword, pierced them, and they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? You know what that is? That is meekness. That's meekness. But you know, the same message, a very similar message was preached just a little bit later by Stephen, and it says when they heard these things, they were cut to the heart. Same effect. But it was received with wrath. And they murdered him. Who are you? Do you have the heart that's ready to hear God's word? I'm going to leave you with one last passage today. Proverbs chapter 23, verse 23, where the Bible says, Buy the truth and do not sell it. Also wisdom, understanding, or instruction and understanding. I've got some things at home that, that I might classify as treasures in some way. And one of those is a, it's a guitar. And, you know, the kids will come over and they'll pick up one of the guitars I leave sitting out. And their parents are like, oh, don't touch that. And I'm like, I don't care. It's just a guitar, right? There's one on the wall that they put their hands on and go, oh, don't touch that. Right? Don't touch that. Don't play with that. Now, I will tell you, its monetary worth is probably around $2,400. Now, I didn't pay that. I paid $500 for it. I got a great deal on it. But if somebody offered me 15 grand for it, I would turn them down. And some of you are thinking, you are crazy. You are crazy. My wife, if she heard that number, she'd be like, you are crazy. I will never sell it. You know why? Because of what it means to me. Because of who I got it from. It's special. And really, there's not a monetary value on it. There's not. That's the way truth ought to be. There's nothing in this world that you should be willing to sell the truth for. But you know, people do it all the time. People sell the truth for things like family. 
family. That's a very hard situation to be in. But you know, Jesus talked about that. He said, a man's foes will be they of his own household. I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring a sword. And you know what divides families? Truth divides families. Truth does. Truth will divide you from friendships. And sometimes we choose the approval of the world over the truth. Is that worth the cost? I got one of my children here. And I don't mind her hearing me say this, but I'm, I'm going to say it. If one of my kids comes to me one day and they've made the decision to live in rebellion against God, I'll tell you what I'm going to choose. The truth. And it's going to hurt. And it's going to be hard. But there is nothing more valuable than God's truth. And we can't compromise it. And we can't apologize for God's holiness. We can't apologize for His truth. We have to stand on that truth. As we go through the week, we're going to be challenged. We're going to read some things. We're going to look into God's mirror. We're going to see some hard things. And I hope today will help us have the right heart as we look at those things, the right desire. You're going to have several times, I haven't counted, several times to hear God's word this week. And we're looking forward to the week. But today, maybe you've been resisting the truth for some time because of something else that you've deemed as more valuable and I want to really, really encourage you today, choose the truth. If you need to obey the gospel of Jesus Christ today, do that. Obey the gospel today, and we want to help you do that. Thanks for joining our sermon series podcast today. For more, check us out on YouTube or come worship with us on Sunday mornings and Wednesday evenings.